Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen Stop Making Sense at the IMAX Digital in Birmingham. It's its 40th anniversary nearly next year mm. and it's had a 4K restoration. It looked magnificent. It was beautiful. It looked amazing and it was the right place to see it. I'd never seen Stop Making Sense. So for those who don't know, Stop Making Sense is... It has a fearsome reputation around it as the king of concert movies, mm. like the most important, the most influential, the one that every every concert movie should aspire to be, that sort mm. of thing. Well, one of them anyway, yeah. Sure. Um, and I'd never seen it, and I, was, and I wasn't that familiar with the Talking Heads. I knew a couple of their hits. I knew mm. Once in a Lifetime, and I, th- I, I forgot, actually, that I knew Burning Down the House until he starts playing it, and then, mm. like, oh, yeah, of Psycho course. Killer, maybe? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't, I, the only other thing I recognised of the music was the, the bit where he goes Kesca say in a song is that Psycho Killer, Killer? Yeah. right okay so that I knew that bit ah. but that's it all right okay. um, I was kind of familiar with David Byrne as as an entity and kind of to some degree I was familiar with what the music and aesthetic of the Talking Heads represented you know kind of art pop and and new wave and that sort of thing but I wasn't very familiar with it and it was it, it wasn't daunting to sort of go into this, but it's like, this is, it's a big film that I've never seen. Mm. And um, people have kind of an enormous amount of respect for. Well, I've never seen it. And I was asking myself, why had I not seen it? Because I'm a huge Jonathan Demme fan. I loved all his 80s films. Uh, uh, Melvin and Howard, Swing Shift with Goldie Hawn, uh, Something Wild, which I just love. Um... Married to the Mob, The Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, all of those I saw. And then I think I stopped after Beloved, and I certainly never had an opportunity to see the 70s films. So, you know, I'm a huge fan, and I loved his his quirkiness and, you know, his um, his sensitivity. He, he, he always presents people doing kind of strange things that you understand, and that you feel a warmth to, actually, for most of them. So, and I was trying to think, why... Such as eating people's livers. That's the exception. Right? <laughs> well, I think you do feel warm to him, in a way. Um, or maybe maybe in the long term you do. Maybe at the time you were scary. In something wild where um, Jeff, I forget what his name is, gets uh, uh, tied up with the handcuffs, you know, and then Melanie Griffith is on top of him. It's just so funny and charming and... Warm and yeah, and then the film veers into darker areas. Jeff Daniels, it, isn't it? Jeff Daniels, yeah. Um, it's really lovely. I mean, I, I really, I, I love his films. And I was thinking how interesting because I think what I love about his films is what maybe put me off about going to see the film. You know? Right. Um, you know, because I also love the music and, you know, the music is a soundtrack to that era. Yeah, particularly if you were my age. I mean, you know, I, I was kind of in my teens into my 20s. Uh, the film came out when I was like 22, you know, so I was at university at that period. Um, You're so the demographic for this. How did you miss I it? I am the demographic. And I think what really put me off yeah. was the trailer, probably, right? Like, I mean, you know, there was a whole realm of um, culture that I really thought was like middle class culture and which I've now come to consider like, you know, characteristics of postmodernism. Yeah, that kind of... You know, you actually need a lot of cultural capital and a considerable amount of money if you come from a poor family 
to, you know, have access to those albums and that reference. And, you know, so I thought on the one hand that it was like kind of, you know, really middle class uh, and also kind of um, North, Amer yeah, North American suburban, really. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I wasn't wrong about all of this. I mean, kind of, you know, just having a cursory look at at Wiki, he was an art student. Yeah, I went to the Rhode Island you know, School of Art. Mm. Um, you know, he was involved in all of those things. The interesting thing, of course, is you know he's Scottish, really. Yeah, yeah, born in Scotland and then raised in Canada for several years and then in yeah. America. But so, but I hated all of that putting in quotation marks, pastiche, deadpan irony. Yeah, mm. I was kind of you know too close to a world in which things hurt. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so, so I kind of resisted all of that for the, you know, the really longest time. I mean, I, you know, I acknowledge that I live in it and that it was like part of the culture and so on, mm. you know, but I kind of, uh, I was put off by it in a way that I wasn't put off by the music. It's interesting because the music, yeah. you know, has kind of like an energy and a presence and, you know, that kind of those images didn't have to me. And I think maybe that's what put me off, actually, just the trailer in the in the. Do you image. remember the trailer? I do. Was it this? Was it this? Uh, this interview with himself thing? I, I don't remember that. Oh uh, right. Yeah, I remember the the, you know, the suit and the wobbliness and the jerkiness and the oh, so just the trailers and clips of the film. Yeah, right. I, I could be misremembering. You know, it could be the trailer for this re-release rather than <laughs> that one. But you know, there was something kind of off-putting, you know, about it, and it wasn't just, and that wasn't the only thing. You know, it's kind of, it's one of the things that put me off. Things like Blue Velvet, yeah, which I kind of, I liked, but I didn't like. So uh, Diane Keaton did a book, I think, on hotel lobbies. And it was like, <laughs> right. So, you know, kind of, there was, there was that kind of uh, ironizing with like a kind of a deadpan face and, and so on that I really thought was like super bourgeois and I despised, really. Mm. Um, did that bear out in the film as you saw it today? Well, the thing is, I've changed, you know, mm. so kind of all of this cultural capital that was so off-putting, I am now a great possessor of, <laughs> right? Oh, well, how, uh, how, that's how did then do you think, had you seen the film at the time, how do you think you would have taken it? Well, I think I would have loved it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, um, though, you know, it's so interesting because I think, well, the first thing that struck me about the film you know, which might seem very superficial. It's just how handsome David Byrne is. Yeah. You know, uh, which, you know, in the, you know, album cover, well, actually the album covers are mostly drawn and so on. So that wasn't kind of even a thing, but even, you know, in the pictures of him and so on, what, what was always kind of reflected was a kind of a deadpan quirkiness, you know, um, he moves to the music and in rhythm, but he always moves awkwardly, right? It's yeah, like, it's like the music moves him. Yeah. That's the way it comes across. Like That's he, right. He can't help, but it has that feeling of someone who, the reason that he is a musician is because he has to be. Yeah. He cannot but speak and think through music and move through music. But there's more than that. It's very interesting because, you know, rock concerts and a lot of rock music to begin with is really all about sex. Yeah. And so it often is about kind of putting sex on display. Mm. And what's kind of really interesting about this film is that it doesn't. 
right? At all. No, absolutely. He's um, not He's not selling sex, and neither are the women there to be looked at. And, yeah. you know, they're not dressed to be, they're not presented to be. And there's a, it was a wonderful to see it you know, on an IMAX screen, because you, know, you see him come out in his suit, and it's all been so clearly well-pressed, right? But the image is so clear that you see all the little pills, it's all pilled up, right? <laughs> the trousers are all filled. So, you know, kind of, I don't know if they were bought secondhand or if, you know, they've been in the closet for a long time, but... Yeah, you know, it's it's pilled up like what happens when you do too many washers on cheap material. And I thought those those things were like so interesting. But, you know, just he is so um beautiful but also kind of inaccessible. He's 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 withdrawn and jerky and not ill at ease but not emotionally accessible yeah and he doesn't draw the audience in i thought what was interesting about this you know parody documentary that we've just seen yeah which... i should just say that we've we've watched the documentary now parody documentary now is a series uh comedy series by bill hader and fred armison where they parody specific um film documentaries in particular so we watched the gray gardens one years ago when we watched gray mm. gardens for real and the, and i've seen a couple of others and just now we watched the uh, the stop making sense parody that they yeah. did and they get a lot of things right, yeah, from the font even, yeah, that they use. All the details and observations are bang on. Yeah, except, you know, one of the things that uh, in, in the film itself, I don't think David Byrne addresses the audience at all. No, very briefly, when he says, I want to introduce the band, yeah. and occasionally he says thanks or whatever. And, and of course, it, it, I think the, uh, the opening is that line of, I want to play a tape. Yeah. And then the song. Yeah. But there's no um, patter to the audience. But there's no long... Yes, and they've also got this whole after-the-fact interviews with the band in the parody, which the film doesn't have at all. It's just a straight-through concert, yeah. concert so, show. So I think that's kind of, you know, one of the well, one of the things that that documentary parody got wrong, but also interesting about David Byrne as a performer as well. Hmm. Yeah, that he doesn't try to butter up the audience or to charm them or... He almost never smiles and he almost never talks to them directly. It's kind of a very interesting and unique presence, actually. I was trying to to think about it because, you know, I was trying to think of it. You know, one of the things that came to mind is Buster Keaton because he's got such a deadpan face, right? Mm. And also Buster Keaton is very handsome. But Buster Keaton is so graceful in his movements, right? <laughs> Whereas this, you know, he's so kind of jerky, yeah? Yeah. Uh, it's like the opposite. I mean, he's got a certain kind of rhythm, but he has no fluidity in that rhythm. Right. Um, so I thought I thought that was kind of, you know, uh, the most arresting thing to begin with was just his face, really. And then, of course, the rhythms. Yeah. But the thing about the audience is interesting. I was just reading that um, one of the reasons that the film is so light on audience shots, just a few real you know, close ups uh, coming at the end, which you're normally used to seeing a lot of audience shots mm. put in throughout concert uh, concert movies. Um the reason that there aren't very many until the end, or none until the end, is that um, they had to light the audience in order to, to to get good shots of them. And then the band became very self-conscious about seeing the audience right. and, that, and basically made it for a bad performance. So they didn't do that. They, but the, the effect that that has, I mean, I just took it as a deliberate decision mm. um, until I read that. Um, the effect of having so few audience shots is that you're not seeing the same show as the audience, right? It's incredibly intimate. Yes. And and when you're on stage with the band looking out at the audience, you can occasionally see there's a little bit of light in them, but not very much. And it's quite, it's kind of isolating. Mm. 
um, you are with the band, particularly David Byrne, who is obviously the centre of attention. And there's there's a whole kind of schema to the way it's shot and edited that is about making you intimate with the band. And this is not something that we've not seen before, and it's something that I've seen an awful lot. You see it in Glastonbury all the time, close-ups of the band members and things. But, and that's why I say, like, I, I, because I'm not that familiar with concert movies, um, I don't know how much of this is very, very new for the time, how much of it has, like, become part of the grammar, or, or how much of it is just that this is just a very good example of how it can be done in a kind of beautifully integrated way that everything makes sense, <laughs> ironically. I mean, I think the film is special partly because it doesn't um, partake of many of the conventions of the time. So, you know, one would have expected for there to have been more of an MTV type of editing. Mm. Yeah, that kind of, you know, would have been quick cuts and, you know, can maybe edit it to the music or something. And this is not like that at all. You know, this is often like close-ups. It's very, um, I don't know, very attentive to form. So often what I notice is you'll have like a close-up of the band, you know, on the left-hand side of the screen and then the other members on the right. And then the third cut is in the middle, mm. right? So there are all, all of these interesting kind of patternings that are kind of created, you know, through the editing. But then the lighting and the fact that it's close-ups kind of, you know, lend it a, a completely different feel. You're there with the band, yeah. And the, um, and it also has the effect, this is why I say you're seeing a different show to the audience. There's there's one point in particular, although this does happen a, a few times, the first point that I noticed, this specific cinematic perspective that you get from the film, is, I can't remember the song, but he, he's, uh, David Byrne is dramatically lit from beneath. Yes. Um, and the shot holds on him for quite a long time and he's singing and singing. And eventually, when it cuts to a wide shot, you see that every band member has been dramatically lit mm. from beneath and that their silhouettes are being projected onto the screens at the back. Mm. It's a very dramatic thing. But you realise the audience has been seeing that from the start. Yes. You haven't. You've been in you know, in David Byrne's face for well, a minute or two. It's a, it's a proper movie, yeah. you know, which a lot of these concert films really aren't. Um, so I think that sequence really begins with the sh his shadow, yeah, kind of, uh, uh, and then kind of, you know, moves on to his face. And, and, and actually at that moment, I thought, this is so interesting because one of the things that the film is doing is it's creating, you know, these images that resonate. It's not like as if they have never been seen in film history, like that mm. style of imagery, but, but actually that feel kind of, you know, unique or special, yeah, that kind of... You know, it's using shadows and lighting and angle and so on to convey stuff and to and to create drama, to create a sense of drama that doesn't detract from the music. Yeah, but that, that actually, that it's visual, yeah, kind of. Mm. Um, I thought that even at the beginning, right, like, so as, as as all the band comes in one by one, I thought, you know, you were mentioning the, the blue sweater on the drummer. And I thought, you know, how interesting, because actually that blue, Lens of vibrancy <laughs> and a color, yeah, amidst the gray, right? Yeah, and it yeah. turns out, as what I was reading on Wikipedia, that apparently David Byrne had asked the band to all wear neutral colors so nothing would stand out chromatically, and um, the drummer's uh, shirt hadn't come back from the laundry, so he wore this bright blue polo shirt and then just kept it because of continuity. They filmed over four shows, so it's not all just one straight run through, but you have to just wear it the whole time. But, um, but yeah, but, but at the end, you don't take it as like a mistake, whatever. You just take it as it's part of the, the setup and it's deliberate or whatever. Yeah, I mean, who cares in a way, you know, that it was an accident? The fact is, what what the, what does the filmmaker 
and the cinematographer then do with what they, you know, what they end up with. And actually, the way that it's lit, it lends a warmth and a vibrancy, you know, to, to the image, mm. uh, making full use of the Technicolor, actually. I mean, I thought that was wonderful. You know, and, and then there is a kind of a patterning in the film because, you know, the use of color is quite selective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but kind of um, very potent, right? So there's that blue initially, you know, then there's those reds, yeah, kind of in When the they light up the, yeah. the screens at the back. It's kind of, I mean, it's like, yeah, that's kind of the, the first segment of the show is quite neutral colored. Um and then when the second starts, all of a sudden it's just dramatic lighting with the screens at the back being illuminated and words coming up and you're in a different space. Mm. Um, and then I suppose towards the end, you get that red hat, which I think someone just throws onto the stage. Uh-huh. I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's part of the anyone's, I think maybe an audience member. Anyway, but this red cap shows up and he puts it on for a bit and he throws mm. it around. And like and that's just, again, it's like that, what's that constable painting where he put that bit of red in the middle and everyone went, oh my God. Mm. You know, it has that feeling of like, wait a minute, this is I can see this all the time. This red mm. hat is in the middle. <laughs> I thought it was wonderful. And I was really thrilled to see it on IMAX because, you know, the image is so great. And it also made me think about the, um, you know, the film stock. Yeah, because... You know the film, the the image has such depth to it, right? Mm. Even though quite a lot of shots are out of focus, yeah, it is kind of a moving band, and yeah, kind of uh, uh, the focus is sometimes deliberately on someone in the background, but actually sometimes they're just not getting a hold of David Byrne's bobbing head, right? So it all feels mm. kind of slightly out of focus. But the image is so rich and dense, right? And it feels so different and so so. If I've been thinking of the films that I've seen recently, and you know, this is from superhero films, whatever, you you know, it's one of the films. It it in the contrast to this makes you wonder something that I I, f- I feel I could never really prove or put my finger on, you know, yeah. But the film stock, if this was shot in, seems to me to be evident in the results you see. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, you do kind of think that one of the reasons that like Marvel has been making sort of four movies a year, whatever it is, for you know fifteen years. And TV shows, the Star Wars have been doing the same thing, and everything is shot quickly and digitally. And you know, digital technology is fantastic, and it allows for all sorts of things. But you do kind of think, oh, here's something that it is really missing. People say for a long time that digital is as good as film, or or you know could replace it or could emulate the look, and it just can't. I've never seen anything that was shot digitally, look as good as something like this. Yes. It's not. It's just not as vibrant. It's not as bright. The contrast isn't as great. You can't you there's can't feel density. as much in the image. There's, first of all, a density to the image. And secondly, you know, um, digital has too much clarity. I don't want to see every pimple in David Byrne's face, and I'm glad it's not there to see. I kind of... I don't quite agree with that, because I think it, it depends on... on what film stock you're shooting on, for instance. I mean, I, I was really struck when I first um, was getting into high definition stuff, sort of 20 years ago, I suppose. I saw Pulp Fiction in high definition and the quality, you know, the detail that you get out of out of the image there is is incredible and it's there on film, you know, so, and, and that's a consequence of, amongst many things, the film stock that's been used. The amount, well, of, the amount of clarity you're able to get out of it. I don't think it's just a digital thing. 
I, I think there is a difference in digital, you know, kind of you end up seeing, you know, every little hair and everything that, you know, you don't necessarily want to see. And well, and it's just a fact that it captures more information, doesn't it, digital, than 35, no? I mean, yes and no. It's sort of, it's because uh, on the other hand, you've got IMAX, which is film, and that's uh, well, a higher I'm, resolution, yeah, quote unquote, than any digital yeah, acquisition format. Yeah. So, like, it's 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 a little bit kind of much or much as to as to what you put. You could shoot on a very bad digital camera and with with a small sensor and not get much information. So, but I suppose as a kind of baseline, um, digital acquisition formats are, are of a particular standard that maybe film doesn't always reach. Well, you know, my and you see it on television, you know, uh, digital has a particular look. One yes. of the things that detracts is that you see every word. You don't necessarily want to see every word, right? Um, and so, and I thought that there was something also about this image, you know, that it had a softness as well. So it had density and texture, but also a softness, mm. right? Um, that I, that, you know, I found very... Um, pleasing, yeah, kind of. Um... The the contrast that I that came to mind for me um, was not so much between film and digital uh, imagery, although it's definitely related. But it's in the adverts we saw before the film. I'd mentioned to you, I think these are the wrong adverts for this because I think stop making sense. It's a forty year old film. It's it's a cinephile's film, um, I think. And the adverts I think you want to put around it are adverts for other you know, restored classics that sure. you're bringing back, that kind of thing. Whereas the adverts that we got were for concert films sure. and for live concerts being shown in cinemas. Sure. Um, so we got an advert for uh, some concert... Opera. That, an in, opera in... Um, not Venice. Verona. Verona, yeah. That's, that's going to be... Or has been recorded in the... Um, what's the word? Not Coliseum, but the... Uh, am- amphitheatre. Uh, yeah, the amphitheatre in Verona. And there's another one that we saw for... Prince of Egypt, which apparently is a on, it's yeah. a musical on stage now. It was the Disney animated thing. And particularly that, if you think about the shots of, of the Prince of Egypt musical as presented in that ad, compared to the shots of Stop Making Sense, right? It's, it's, it's a whole world apart. And one of the things is that incredible clarity that they're just showing everything. But it's also the, as in, as in, in, in Prince of, in Prince of Egypt, they are, just showing everything with, with no particular distinction as to, you know, I mean, there's so many shots in Stop Making Sense where it's like light, uh, a person's face lit and the background black mm. or very little in it. And the contrast is... That's yeah. right. The sparsity of the image is is something that's beautiful in Stop Making Sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, it's partially a clarity thing that, that you don't actually want to see absolutely everything, but it's partially an aesthetic thing of what are the choices and how something is being shown. They're both stage shows that have been shot to be presented on cinema screens, but one of them is cinematic and the other is, it's like being shot by someone who's doing admin. Mm. Just just get the footage I, and go. Yeah. You feel, I could have filmed that, you know, um, with my camera and got similar results. There isn't like a visual intelligence behind it. And there isn't like a narrative intelligence about how to narrate those things visually, really, which is the complete opposite of the film of Stop Making Sense, which which clearly does, and it's such a pleasure to see. Yeah. Um, one of the things, and this goes to some degree to what you were saying about the postmodernism and and um, the way in which the Talking Heads and David Byrne sort of, sort of present themselves, is that the whole opening act to this film is of an empty stage, which is gradually 
built. So, well, the, the band is built on the stage. So it starts off with just uh, David Byrne walking onto stage with the tape recorder and the guitar, and he sings, and then he's joined by a bassist. Gradually, platforms are brought on which have the drum kit. Uh, there's another set of drums for kind of like world music type instruments. Um, and gradually, one song at a time, the band is built until eventually, I think that, that act ends with um, Burning Down the House, which was their big hit at the time. So the film's 84. They've been... They've been together since 77, mm-hmm. and this was the tour in support of their fifth album. Mm-hmm. And um, Burning Down the House was their, their big, and I think it's still their biggest hit, mm-hmm. and it had kind of recently come out. So the, the the first act kind of, you have the band being built, and then it ends with that, and it's it's about a deconstruction, because once you get into the second act, all of a sudden, the, the stage is kind of complete. I mean, it's sparse. There's not a lot going on. It's just, it's mostly... Um, the instruments and band members it's not like a huge production but you have the scrims in the background being projected upon you have interesting lighting it's it's like the the first act is the deconstruction you know you're seeing a backstage even the curtain doesn't come down until halfway through that act mm. till towards the end of it you're seeing everything backstage second half is a different thing like the the the, the um the the band and the the set and everything are complete and like it's like a full performance now it's interesting. I mean, I thought it was interesting in relation to other concerts, certainly concerts that I went to at the time, because this is a show. It's not just like, I mean, when I think of a rock concert, I went to see James Brown, who's referenced in the film, you know, and it was it was James Brown <laughs> playing, you know, the roller skating rink in Montreal, right? And it was just him and, you know, and I mean, sometimes he danced, right? Yeah. But it was just the band dancing. I mean, you know, there was no lights that I could remember or not even lights. Right. Um, So this has lights, it has costuming, it has, you know, different backgrounds projected on the screen. It has messages. It's a show. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I thought that was uh, very interesting. And and David Byrne is a showman. I mean, you know, kind of... um, I love him running around the stage, you know. I mean, there's so much movement that it, it is jerky and things. Like you say, he's not a graceful mover, but he's a kind of... He's 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 an unstoppable mover, and yeah. he's like he's ju- he's jumping up and down, he's running in place. The whole band is running in place, you know. And then he just and then yeah. at one point he just goes for a run around the stage a few times, yeah. you know. I think it's, it's really... a huge amount of joy. In I mean, also I wasn't familiar with the music very much, as right. I say. Um, and which is something because if you like the film but you weren't that familiar with the music, that in itself is telling us something. Yeah, well, part of it is that I did like the music as I was listening to it, right. so I d- I, there weren't many songs that were you know. Um, I mean, I, I, well, I didn't dislike any song. There were a couple where I thought, yeah. But, you know, that's the same with Denny, you know. Um, and it was funny, actually. Burning Down the House, I think if you didn't know the band, you could tell that Burning Down the House is a big hit. Mm. The way it's produced and the way it sounds and just the just, just what it is, I think you can tell it's big. Once in a Lifetime, which I is another, you know, kind of, again, it's the other song I knew of theirs and it's, it's a fairly iconic song. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that you would from the film. And I think it's partly the way it's played... Um, it's not that it's bad, but I don't think I would have picked it out as, oh, I can recognize, I think that one's got something to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It kind of blends in with a lot of the other songs. But then it's also that the other songs are good as well. And I was tapping my foot to them, and they've got great beats and rhythms and melodies. I enjoyed it all. I mean, my one criticism would be the a kind of unintended politics, right? Because, you know, I mean, from my understanding, kind of, you know, David Byrne has always been kind of someone, uh, a progressive person, yeah? You know, uh, um, though 
I don't know to what extent he's been an actively political person, though, you know, within the arts, he has been. There's no question about that, you know, from uh, contributing to the to the uh, Terence Higgins trust compilations to the interest in world music. I mean, he is a progressive person, I think. Um, but watching the film, you know, you do see how um, how how even a progressive person is unconscious of some of the givens of their time. And I thought the racial thing in relation to the band was like um, not not a problem. Well, yes, a problem. It's telling of his time. Yeah. So you know, he comes on. Then the major people come on who are all white. Yeah. Well, they're the band members, aren't they? The band was four people. And I know. That's who they are. But then there's the backup singers. Yeah. And then there's the bongo drummer, you know, and the person who gets everyone to clap and dance is black. <laughs> like, you begin to see a patterning, right? So, mm. you know, yeah, I love you, but <laughs> you have your place, right? And your place is below mine. Or maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's also the, the argument to make they didn't even need to be there at all if the band is four people. Yeah, you know, why are you having other people on stage at all? It's great to have other people there. Look, there's no question that, you know, he wanted other people there, that they brought something to it. You know, the the the, the music has a lot of kind of, you know, what what's called world music in it. I mean, you know, mm. and, and David Byrne was one of the great propagators and enthusiasts for music from Africa and Latin America. You know, so I'm not making a criticism, but that is the pattern in the film. That, and you could say, oh, well, it's the band. And you say, well, why didn't the band have black people? Well, that's not, that's you know? So, so when you see that patterning, you're conscious of a, of a societal structural racism, you know, that is not necessarily his fault that he might have been trying to combat, but that actually becomes visible through the structure of the film itself. Yeah, that may be the case. I can certainly see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he also, I mean, he also sings with them. You know, one of the guys takes the mic off him at one point and he doesn't complain. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that he's a racist or no, that his no. interactions are false. I'm just telling you. But it's also not that they're completely excluded. Like, it, I mean, they wouldn't be excluded. They're on stage well, the, performing, but, but it, it, it's uh, not just well, that they're backing him up. He interacts with you them. You can argue interacts... that the United States does not exclude race. <laughs> I mean, you know, but actually it's the way that race is structured into the culture that's a problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, the film is telling of those structures, you know, that exist. And I thought it was very interesting as well, because even the documentary parody picks up on it, right? Yeah, the introductions, and then you have, what was it, the ties, the tie band? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, kind of, I'm not, I'm not the only mm. one to have picked up on that. They picked it up as something, you know, to joke about, but it's there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. I mean, I did think about it, you know, but, um, but I, I mean, I was also thinking, you know, Suella Braveman just gave this fucking, you know, fascist speech the other day about how multiculturalism has failed. And I was like, multiculturalism hasn't failed. It was succeeding 40 years ago in this film and it's lovely and everything benefits from it. Well, so fuck you. Yeah. Uh, I think certainly kind of, you can see how it's absolutely well-intentioned and more than well-intentioned, probably progressive to bring these people in. Yeah. Uh, but it felt to me to be revealing of other things that were maybe kind of not as nice. Mm. Fair enough. Anyway, a wonderful film. Yeah, it really was. And I was also thinking that it's so great. I mean, it's so great to have gone to cinema to see it. I don't know that I would have ever bothered to get around to watching it otherwise. So that's I'm one sure. thing. 
Um, but another thing is that, and, and it wasn't, it, we got advanced tickets. Um, the film, I think, is like fully released this weekend and we're seeing it on Wednesday. So that partially explains why the cinema was us and three other Four people, people yeah. you know, hardly anyone there. Um, and yeah, how great it would have been to see it with the full cinema. But I was thinking, I'm not, I'm not crazy about like really exploring music. Like I will if someone says I should listen to this. And I'm not crazy about live music either. I've been to a few gigs and I'm not crazy about them. Um, so it's not like I was expecting the worst, but I just thought it might not hugely be my sort of thing. Um, and I thought that if I were watching this at home, having decided to give it a go at last, would I have stuck it out? Would I have turned it off? Would I have treated it as background music? It would have been something along those lines. It's such a different experience. I mean, because... here it's yeah, you, you're in the cinema. You, the music is so loud. The image is so beautiful. What's on it is so captivating. You're just watching this guy who is interesting to look at and pretty and moves interestingly. It's it's a completely different experience than it would be if you're watching it at home or just as i say treating it as like background watching it's not you can't do that it's just i mean whatever people say you know cinema is a completely different experience i was um i was watching this film i've really been looking forward to seeing by alain corneau it's a it's a it's a crime film called serie noire uh with uh you know an actor i love patrick de Vier. and uh you know kind of i'm watching it on my tv i have a large tv Right. And there's still this thing where you watch, you know, kind of something, something gets your attention. You think, oh, you know, I'll make a cup of coffee now. You pause it like, you know, I I had like two and a half hours to watch this two hour film. And I only watched one hour of it Mm. because I was due to go see you. So, you know, to be immersed in the size and and actually the quality of the image. I mean, I think it was a, a wonderful experience. Yeah, it was. And I really recommend people go and see it. It holds up 40 years later. Yeah, for sure. The music holds up, the, the filmmaking holds up, and it's just, it'll fucking get you out of the house and sit you in a really interesting, fun, toe-tapping concert. You know, all that. It's great. Yeah. It's great. It's a night out. <laughs> so, and it's not just rhythmic. I mean, I think the other thing is, you know, there's, there's an attempt at... I don't know, ideas through the aesthetic, right? You know, so kind of like, uh, you know, the the songs are not the usual I love you, yeah, kind of, or I want you, mm. or I'm so lonely type of songs, yeah, that kind of so much music is about. Uh, it, uh, it is also about other things, which are, which are personal, but which are also societal, right? Like, you know, and you get that in some ways through, you know, kind of, Partly um, the the background projections, you know, the lyrics to the songs, yeah, and then the type of imagery used is very, very kind of um, interesting and and unusual, you know. To the extent that you understand the lyrics, so I think yeah, I I came out of the songs having understood basically half of anything what was said, mm. um, which is no criticism of like the singing or the mix or anything like that. It's just, I think that's the way it is. And they're very big productions and I enjoy that. Um, but the singing just becomes, it's another instrument. Mm. And, and also, and David Byrne is also, um, you know, he scats a lot and that sort of thing. Like mm. he, he, his voice is being he's used a, as an he's instrument. A musician. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, wow. So it's not, it's not that I'm sure if you actually understand the lyrics and know the lyrics and there's a whole other dimension to these songs because mm. the lyrics are what they are. 
Um, he's not just singing random words, mm. but um, not understanding the lyrics is like it's no sort of um, impedance to enjoying the show and getting something emotional and, and getting a feeling out of it and that sort of thing. You know, mm. she makes you think of uh, funny Radiohead. Their band name came from a Talking Head song, uh-huh. um, and and the way in which Tom York uses his voice is in some respects really similar. I mean, mm. I, you can listen to Radiohead and you understand hardly anything that he's singing, but it's the feeling with which he's singing it and the register in which he's singing and that sort of thing carries its own meaning. Except um, Talking Heads is so much more beat-driven and percussive. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, it's dance music. There's so much. Radiohead is, not, Radiohead is not music that you dance to. Yeah. Um, this oh. is, absolutely. Mm. You know. In fact, that's another thing. That's another reason I think that it's good that you don't see the audience so much early on because they're all sat down. And it's only as the music starts to, you know, the gig develops and then they all start standing up and dancing along. And by the end, it's a big old party. Mm. But at the start, it's boring to look at them. Mm. <laughs> you know? Well, maybe we don't know because we don't see them. Not very much. Um, anyway, you know, I would highly encourage people to go see it. It's a real experience and it's a wonderful film. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies and uh, Blue Sky. God, I can't remember what the handle for that is. Eavesdropping.bsky.social, I think. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>